So the this is sort of born of I think wanting to look back into into history um, at how how we how we've sort of positioned sort of the state military technology and the social position of military uh, elites, so to speak, um, and how that has worked through time. A, a caveat up front, right, is that you know big big sort of uh, social change is often multi-causal, um, and you know you can. I, I'm not saying that you know the the ways in which war fighting occurs is like the ultimate end all be all, but uh, it's an interesting lens through which to see the development of the state, and I think gives us uh, some interesting uh, theories as yeah, to well, how we can understand I it mean, now. Pa- paradox guys aside, what actually got me and Riley into this was reading about all of the uh, the Western volunteers who have gone to fight in Ukraine, uh, and, and and reading about them and like their generally horrible experiences. And thinking whether or not something has changed in like uh, the the way in which we we fight wars. I have to say though, Riley, I feel as though you have the parody has slipped into your brain and made itself real when it talks about your the serious IR version of Trash Future <laughs> because you've committed the cardinal sin of using the term war fighting yes. ironically. <laughs> and don't think for a fucking second that I didn't hear that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Because that that word. I am fucking allergic to it because I remember when I was in the army and hearing people saying the war fighter and I literally heard someone say, we have to, we were still in the war fight. I'm like, you mean the war? Like the war fighter, what is the war fighter fighting? Does he fight in a fight war? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Ma- Major Riley has brought in this PowerPoint for us and we're yeah, all going to listen right. to it. Riley's doing a five finger point at the, at the screen right now. Yeah, right. Riley's R- Riley's somehow been commissioned as a major, and I'm still a fucking salty captain who hates his life, and I'm just like <laughs> fucking stupid shit. Yeah, I, I went. It's not I went about to the West. war in the fight. It's about the fight in the war. I went, I went to West Point and like wrote a thesis on uh, axes of advance. And yeah, like, you did like distant, you did a distance eight. learning West Point program. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, so uh, I. I want to talk right. The, the, what we're going to talk about here, right, is the something Patrick you've talked about a lot, which is the military revolution of like the the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries, and how that has changed. I'm not going to say it. How that has changed war. Just uh, say war. war. Yeah. Just say Conflicts. war. Yeah. yeah. The fighting of war. <laughs> that has changed war and the state, and then tracing those evolutions to where we are now. So before we launch into it, could you just explain what the military revolution is and how it relates to the state? Okay, so the military revolution basically refers to a complex of changes that we see at some in some time frame between the 14th and the 17th centuries. So that's a really long period of time. The restricted version of that would make arguments for like the 16th century. I th- I prefer a version that has some roots in the 14th century largely takes place technologically over the course of the 15th century. And then in terms of scale, you see the biggest changes at the beginning of the 16th. So basically it's a, it's a, it's a combination of gunpowder warfare pikes, um, an, in, an increase in military professionalism, and then a massive increase in scale that you see most notably around sieges and the length of conflict. Right. So it's basically, an increase wars, in the length and the girth of conflict, <laughs> length and girth. Oh. Yeah, they do. They get yeah. much girthier. The axes of advance get much wider. Um, you know, so take take that as you will. But basically, yeah, you're you're ta- what you're talking about is a, a shifts in the way that war is conducted, shifts in its intensity and scale in the technology. Technologies that are used to fight it, and 
the upshot of all of those is that you get a changing relationship between war and the state that there's there's a famous line from the sociologist Charles Tilly, which is the uh, war made the state and the state made war. And basically, the longer the longer these conflicts got, the more intensive state involvement in them became which helped to grow the state, which eventually leads you to in the 17th and 18th centuries, what we call the fiscal military state in Western Europe, which is best exemplified by Britain, um, but types of which could be found elsewhere, where you essentially get an entire state fiscal apparatus that is built around making war. And the more uh, the closer the state's ties to um, money people and merchants, the more efficiently states could do that, the more efficiently states could could fund their their debt, which allowed them to fight more and more effective and longer wars, which eventually gives you the 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 kind of 19th century national state. And then, you know, into the 20th century. And here we are, because correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick, but there was a period of time prior to this where the way that the state or the crown made war was effectively barons loyal to the crown could raise armies of mercenaries. But that wasn't necessarily tied in as like the state's army so much as it was under the, you know, the, the banner of that monarch or that ruler. Yeah. So so in the, the classic medieval model is one where the the ruler disperses land in return for military service. That military service is short is is relatively short in duration, like, say, 60 days for, for kind of classic feudal military service. Now, there's. There's some stuff around the edges here that that doesn't really fit that model, which is that basically every medieval king always made use of hired soldiers to some degree, right? Like even Richard the Lionheart going on the third crusade had a huge proportion of what we consider we would consider mercenaries in that army. So every medieval army still has mercenaries. There is still military professionalism in the Middle Ages, but there are no in the in the Middle Ages, there are no real standing armies. A standing army basically does not exist. So and this this continues through most up into the 15th and to into the 16th centuries, where if you have a standing army, it's a pretty small force and it's mostly supplemented by mercenaries. So what makes the 15th and the 16th centuries really interesting, in my opinion, is that you get the development of military professionalism and dramatic increases in the scale and sophistication of warfare without that necessarily being something that is directly under the state's control. So war is private business, but funded by the state. Into the 17th and 18th centuries, you get more and more kind of state control over warfare until by the time you're into the 19th and the 20th centuries, we think of war in the state as being effectively inseparable. Like the state has gotten its monopoly on violence and the state owns the means of making war at scale, which was not the case in the Middle Ages and into the early modern period. Look, I can't really talk about it, but I've had to go back to the 13th century for a little job. <laughs> they should say it's not too far from Lebanon. You know what I'm saying? Well, so this is the uh, so this is the thing I think is really fascinating about war in the present day is that like I think we should view this period of state control over warfare, um, like where it's it's people in uniforms doing the fighting, or at least where that's the normative model that we have in our head of what war is supposed to look like, that that's really a product of the 19th century, really the post-French revolutionary era, um, the era of the world wars and kind of a little bit of the Cold War, and that we're still stuck with this mental model that makes it really difficult for us to understand what global conflict looks like in the 21st century with this model in mind well we, we've all been deciding that now is the moment for our new uh, our new military revolution whether that's like hybrid warfare or something else 
Uh, and, and nobody quite knows what to make of any of this yet, but we do have, uh, a, conveniently, a, a new huge war in Ukraine to try and draw all sorts of conclusions <laughs> all over. <laughs> well, well, it yeah. is hybrid warfare in the sense that a bunch of Chechen guys will show up in a Porsche Panamera plug-in hybrid before I- getting blown up by a drone. <laughs> I, I, chiefly, I chiefly understand hybrid warfare and like the Gerasimov Doctrine to mean a mixture of warfare and posting. Right, it's uh, war is posting achieved by other means. <laughs> <laughs> so, Patrick, I guess I want to say, right? So, we have this this mental model that we of the fiscal military state with a standing uniformed army supported by a large bureaucracy, and that we're sort of trying to fit that onto onto war in the twenty first century. Where do you feel it doesn't fit? So, I think it very much doesn't fit with the Islamic state. I don't think it fits especially well with the uh, with I mean kind of the long ongoing conflict in Syria where you have numerous state actors, numerous non-state actors, um ideologically driven attempts to create like religious ideology attempts to create a territorial state out of whole cloth. Like None of that really fits with the model of you have a state which which taxes its populace to support an army which fights in which which exercises sole control over the application of of large scale violence in a particular area like none of that really fits those conflicts it doesn't didn't fit Afghanistan particularly well I don't think it fits um, most of the conflict that's taken place in sub-Saharan Africa especially well it doesn't fit insurgencies over the course of the 20th century particularly well um, so. I think so. We have this model where you have two uniformed militaries meeting in large scale conflict, which basically doesn't suit most of what conflict has actually been by volume. And in Ukraine, I think because we're so much more familiar with the nature of the combatants than we than we would have been in, say, Chechnya 20 years ago, like we can really see that model breaking down in real time. You're like, oh, who are these Chechen guys? Well, they're not part of the Russian military. They're kind of the personal army of an semi-independent warlord who's fighting on behalf of his liege lord. Like that's Okay, that doesn't really fit. You know what I mean? They're so we're forced to confront out, these contradictions. <laughs> they, <laughs> they are. They've got a Jeep Wrangler yeah. with a 50 cal on the top, which, to be honest, a medieval peasant could only have dreamed of. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. To, to be fair, the Balkan Wars also had this, and that was part of the reason why they were so famously difficult in the eyes of a lot of people who said things like war fighting. 